Welcome back to more Summertime from the Bridge. I'm Rick Jones, Captain of Fishbait Marketing and your weekly host. We're going to continue to talk today more about bait. I'd be remiss if I didn't remind my listeners that I think bait is the single most important part of sponsorship sales. And bait is also the most essential part of why a company will sponsor anything. We're also going to get to hear from one of my clients, Sean Lupton of Opry Entertainment in Nashville, the group that owns and manages both the Grand Ole Opry and the famous Mother Church of Country Music, the historic Ryman Auditorium. And we'll share another amazing place to eat on the road with Rick. Last week, we started discussing the various things that are bait for selling sponsorships, namely the assets in your tackle box to offer a potential sponsor. While most, if not all, corporate sponsorship packages include multiple assets, last week we focused on the single one key element that made many famous sponsorship programs become so successful. But today we're going to go a little deeper and look at some what I call unusual baits. And I call these my four lures. So the first lure out of the tackle box is what I call icing. This is where the company already has a position with the type of property that you sell and that you sell them an activation element of something they're already doing rather than a new sponsorship. And a great example of that is several years ago, I had the opportunity to sell a sponsorship for the American Football Coaches Association to Allstate Insurance. Allstate, longtime sponsor of college football. They sponsor the Sugar Bowl. They sponsor the college football playoff. Uh, they sponsor the field goal nets at many of the schools around the country. They already had a, a strong, strong appetite for college football. Uh, the AFCA uh, had a special program called the Good Works Team. And the Good Works Team is a, a team of uh, student athletes that are nominated by their coaches and uh, athletic directors for their community service. And so these are people that actually give back. And it's amazing what some of these student athletes have done in terms of starting foundations or leading bone marrow transplants or all sorts of amazing things. So I felt like it was a perfect fit for Allstate. Uh, the Allstate good hands, good works team just made so much sense. Well, I thought that and I presented it to their agency, IMG, who presented it to the client and the client said no. The second year, I decided I'll make another run at them and, and did it again and made the same run because I felt like it was so perfect for them. And once again, they told me no. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. In the third year, Allstate got a new sponsorship director, Patrick Pierce. And going through his files, he found the proposal. And he called me and said, Rick, I'm sure this thing's not available anymore, is it? And I said, no, Patrick, actually, it still is available because it's perfect for you. And so he bought it, and now they're in, I think, year 16 or 17 of being the sponsor of the AFCA Good Works team. Now, again, this was an icing strategy. Uh, we also previously mentioned that we had uh, a lot of success doing this with the College Football Hall of Fame. And we're also trying to do the same with the Mascot Hall of Fame, where we're focused on companies that already have corporate mascots. So we're not asking you to do something that you're unfamiliar with. We're asking you to put icing on a cupcake that you've already baked. The second lure I want to talk about today is what I call a media enhancement. 
And that's where we have an added value off-channel asset to enhance an existing media buy. And one of the best examples was Infinity Automobiles had a position with ESPN to be the presenting sponsor of their Saturday night college basketball showcase. Well, anybody can do an ad. How do you plus that up? And the way we plussed it up was we used college coaches. And we created a thing called the Infinity Coaches Charity Challenge, where each of the coaches that participated selected their own charity. And we promoted those charity challenges through a series of vignettes leading into the broadcast with a strong, strong digital and social presence. And then fans could vote for their favorite coach's charity. And ultimately, one coach won $100,000 for his charity, and every coach got some money for their charity for participating. This is an example of a media enhancement that overlaid what they were already doing. The third lure I want to talk about today is what I call the spear gun. (laughs) And that is, is the sponsor really trying to reach a narrow subset of a macro audience? You know, a lot of times we talk about scale or we talk about frequency and reach, but what happens when you want to reach a very narrow audience versus a broader audience? Well, a few years ago, ESPN came to me and said, hey, we need help selling the Rose Bowl, and we've got a lead that Fidelity may have some interest in it, but I'm looking for an added value component for Fidelity. Well, one of my clients at the time was the National Football Foundation, and um, they do um, uh, select uh, members to the College Football Hall of Fame each year, and as part of that, they do on-campus presentations. Well, what Fidelity was really interested in was not the broad audience, but the narrow audience of those administrators on campuses that actually bought financial services on behalf of professors and other people that work there. And so they were really looking to find the benefits administrator and have that person um, be involved uh, with Fidelity. Uh, Fidelity was number two at the time to Tia Kref in terms of the number of universities that used uh, them for uh, pension programs for their uh, professors and staff. Um, And so we ended up doing a partnership between Fidelity and the National Football Foundation where Fidelity sponsors those Hall of Fame salutes on those campuses. And oh, by the way, guess who happens to show up for those? A Fidelity executive, the athletic director, the honoree, and oh yes, the benefits administrator. And from that, Fidelity was perceived as giving back to the, uh, to the university and gave them a unique position. And they've been doing this now for a number of years. Again, we call this the spear gun. I'm shooting at a single fish rather than a school of fish. The fourth lure is what I call the balance beam. And this is a way that I try to persuade a client to balance their portfolio to reach a different audience. When we worked for the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, we would go to all the sponsors of the National Association of Basketball Coaches, the men's coaches, and remind them that they needed to sponsor the women's coaches too. They didn't have to do it at a commensurate level. They didn't have to spend the same amount of money, but we told them it would be more politically correct for them to spend some money in women's basketball versus, you know, alienating that entire audience by not participating. Um, State Farm has done this successfully. If you if you look at State Farm's uh, portfolio in uh, in basketball, they are the sponsor of the NBA. They are the sponsor of the 
um, USA basketball team. Um, they were for a long time a sponsor of the NCAA. They're not anymore, but they are a sponsor of numerous uh, universities and schools. They're the sponsor of college basketball game day, powered by State Farm. But they needed to get younger. And so one of the things they do is they sponsor the annual State Farm Slam Dunk three-point challenge at the Final Four. Intersport, an agency out of Chicago, produces that, has for a number of years. And it's a highly rated show uh, against that younger segment that they're trying to reach, those young adults before they make decisions about uh, which insurance company they're going to choose. And, you know, State Farm, Allstate, others now, they're in a war with those online, um, you know, the insurances of the world and the progressives of the world and the Geico's of the world where you can go online and, and buy insurance without using an agent. And State Farm wanted to have a position with that. So we call that the balance beam. How do you find a different audience um, and, and adjust your portfolio to reach that audience? Now, here's what I know. Fly fishermen tie custom flies. <laughs> And customization is your best differential when you start thinking about bait. So here's a few other random bait ideas for today. Uh, The first one is I call a customer of one. What happens when you don't really want to reach anybody but exactly one person? Mark McCormick, the legendary founder of IMG, told a great story. He said in, in about 1962, he was representing Jack Nicholas at the time, and a president of a railroad company came to him and said, "Um, Mark, uh, I'm trying to do some business with this Japanese industrialist. And this Japanese industrialist loves golf and he loves Nicholas. What would it take for me to get Jack to play around a golf with him? Well, Mark thought about it and said, you know, Jack hasn't been to Japan. I'd like to get him to Japan. We could build some other things around a trip to Japan, and uh, and he could play golf with the guy. So uh, Mark arranged it and said, I tell you what, pay, pay Jack $10,000 and uh, pay his travel expenses to Japan, and, and he'll do that. And so Jack did. Well, Mark kind of forgot about it. And about 17 or 18 months later, he was at a cocktail party, and he bumped into the same president of the railroad company. And he said, hey, uh, how did it ever go with Jack? He said, oh, God, it was tremendous. He had a great time. He said, well, did you ever do any business with that, uh, with that Japanese industrialist? And he said, yeah, $22 million. McCormick said, you know, I should have said, uh, pay him $10,000, pay his travel expenses, and give me 5% of whatever you get. The guy would have done it. And so in this case, this sponsorship was about an audience of one, a customer of one, and not broad. A second bait idea is to advertise where it counts. And one of my favorite examples of that is a few years ago, Special K Cereal came out with a strawberry-flavored Special K. And they launched it in January. And let's think about January. January is the month when every woman and every man in America has decided they're going to lose weight. But where could Special K most effectively reach women in a way to tell them they could lose weight? Well, they bought ads in dressing rooms of department stores. So you went in and tried on the size six and found out you wore a 10 and decided maybe Special K would be a great example, a great way for me to uh, to lose some weight. I thought it was a really funny way and a very appropriate way to do that. Guys, we know that many times that when we go to 
uh, arenas and stadiums, we go to urinals, and there's always an ad over the urinal because we're going to look straight ahead, and it's aimed at a man with a male product because that's going to be appealing to men because last time I checked, there are only men at urinals. Um, the third bait idea I have for you today is what I call try being outrageous. And here was a great example of that. When the Mini Cooper first was um, created and, and, and released in America, uh, there was a, a, a dealer in Miami that decided that the best way to get people to test drive the new Mini Cooper was to charge them. Now, that's outrageous. So what he told everybody was, our car is so cool that you got to pay $10 for a test drive. But oh, by the way, I'm going to give all $10 away to charity. And it was amazingly successful because people felt like if you had to pay for a test drive, this must be one heck of a car. And uh, he ended up being the leading Mini Cooper dealer in America through that outrageous promotion. We talked earlier on our show um, about Roger Enrico, who was the guy who invented the Pepsi Challenge in Dallas, where uh, he had nothing to lose because he had little share. And that program became so successful that not only did they continue the Pepsi Challenge throughout the country, it ultimately forced Coke to change their formula and come out with new Coke. And maybe most importantly of all for young Roger Enrico, he later became the CEO of PepsiCo. So being outrageous sometimes I think can be a a true competitive advantage. I wanted to finish up today talking about a few examples of what I call ecocentric sponsorships or marketing campaigns. And here are a few. The first one is what I call style over substance. And a great example of that is the Dos Equis Most Interesting Man in the World campaign. If you remember during that era that if you wanted to sell beer to guys, you had babes in bikinis. Well, they didn't do that. They had this old guy, but he was an old guy that had lived a very rich life. And every young beer drinker said, I want to grow up to be that old guy. Image above everything else. Here's another example of that. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Both campaigns allows the consumer to interpret their own story. When I looked at the most interesting man in the world, I could decide how I wanted to be interesting and how I wanted to emulate that guy. I can make up my own Vegas story because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we call this conceptual balance, the ability to have a thematic, but that thematic to be interpreted by an individual consumer. A second example is what I call the cast. And when you're fishing, you have to make a good cast to try to hit fish in the right place. A few years ago, one of our clients was Under Armour, and Under Armour decided to be a sponsor of the National Association of Basketball Coaches, but they wanted to do a party. And, and Under Armour's parties were legendary at the Final Four. But the way they drove the invitation was, in order to get an invitation to the party, you had to come by their booth in their trade show and physically pick up the the invitation. That drove you to their trade show booth where they were able to have a conversation with you about their products. They not only did that, but they charged a $5 entry fee. Again, they said, our party is so good, you're willing to pay for it. 
But what they did was they matched that $5 with their own $5 for $10 that they used to buy tennis shoes for the Samaritan's Feet organization. So you knew not only did you come to the party and have a good time, but coming to the party, you were able to have a pair, a new pair of shoes for some child around the world. Um, pretty interesting program called The Cast. The next one we call Fishing in Uncharted Waters. Several years ago, we had the tragic BP oil spill in the Gulf. Well, we took BP oil spill money in the state of Alabama, and we bought a sponsorship of the Southeastern Conference for our client, Gulf Shores and Orange Beach Tourism. And if you know about that stretch of what we call the Redneck Riviera down there in lower Alabama, or LA for short, it's a very, very small strip of land. But if you looked at the geographic footprint of the SEC, it's almost like a funnel geographically that funnels you down to that strip of beach. And so we bought the sponsorship of the Southeastern Conference, and we came up with a theme called Where SEC Families Come to Play. And in our creative, we used former coaches, not as coaches, but as grandfathers. And we had amazing ads. Uh, We had a a great ad with uh, Coach Pat Dye, the former coach at at Auburn, where we had a little boy on the beach at Orange uh, Beach, and and he said – Uh, uh, Coach Dye said, we must protect this house. And, of course, Auburn was and continues to be an Under Armour school. Um, And you thought maybe that was what it was going to be. And then you realize, no, the house was a sandcastle that the little boy had built on the beach. And then the little boy turned to Coach Dye and said, Coach Dye, do I need to worry about the tide? (laughs) Coach Dye said, son, we never worry about the tide. (laughs) And so it was just a great spot. We had so many other great spots. Uh, One of my favorite stories is we did one on Gulf Seafood. And we had each of our coaches representing their school and their school colors in a certain form of of fish. And so we had um, Jerry Stovall from LSU uh, had yellow fin tuna because of the colors of LSU. We had uh, Philip Fulmer of uh, Tennessee have orange roughy. Uh, we had Coach Dye again do blue crabs. Um, we had Frank Broyles do um, redfish. Um, and finally, uh, Coach Stallings say, well, with all this great Gulf sh- seafood, don't you have something in crimson? He was the former coach at Alabama. Well, we rehearsed it over and over and over. Coach Dye would say, I think I'll have the blue crabs. And then Coach Fulmer would say, I think I'll have the orange roughy. And then Coach Stovall said, I'll have the yellowfin tuna. When it got to Coach Broyles, he said, I'll have the fried catfish. <laughs> I said, Coach, Coach, you're supposed to say, I'll have the red snapper. He said, yeah, I know, Rick, but I really wanted the catfish. I said, Coach, we'll get you the catfish. Just read your line. It was a really funny, funny time and a great campaign. We also created a special event called the SEC Beach Fest, uh, a weekend of activities of fun and football and lots of things that we did there. We had merchant participation, the hotels, the condos, the restaurants, the attractions in Orange Beach participate. We had sponsors, other sponsors of the Southeastern Conference uh, that participated with fan interactives, um, you know, for, the, for both uh, the SEC and those sponsors. Um, The next one is also, and I'll use an example from uh, Gulf Shores and Orange Beach, and this is the one we call the guest of honor. Um, And this is where you create a by invitation only special event within 
a special event. So you take an event like maybe a trade show that everybody can attend, but then you carve out something that only a few select people can do. So you have a guest speaker in an intimate setting for your best prospects, your best customers, your best associates, and you have a Q&A potentially by those attendees. Well, mentioning the, the SEC Beach Fest, we had three current head coaches make appearances. Nick Saban, Gene Shizik at the time at Auburn, and Les Miles, who at that time was at uh, LSU. Uh, and as part of that, they did a special roundtable discussion in our corporate VIP hospitality area, only available for those that had bought those VIP uh, level tickets. Uh, I think this is a big idea. The last bait idea I call fish on the line. And this is one I got from a military attraction that they give out numbered dog tags at trade shows. And the recipients check once a week to see if their number has won prizes. And there's a choice of prizes for the winners. It's a big idea because it facilitates constant communication because the prospect opts to go to their website and choose the prize. And they go back repeatedly because they've got the dog tag with the serial number on it to check to make sure that it does that. And so there's a way to give a premium away uh, that allows you to, um, to have people to have repeat trips to your social site or your digital site on an ongoing basis. So let me close this segment by saying the combination of properties, architecture, the assets engineering, and customized sponsor bait will create the perfect proposition for the perfect prospect that you've qualified. So next week, we're going to discuss how to qualify a prospect. Now, here's today's Tuesday tip. You know, I'm constantly amazed at what people give away as premiums at event engagements, usually stuff people don't want or what they give as corporate gifts to customers, or how they reward the people that help them along the way. You know, I give a lot of speeches, and it seems like at the conclusion of every one of those, someone gives me a plaque to say how much they appreciated my speech. Now, no offense, but I don't need any more plaques. Where am I supposed to put them? I also don't need any more koozies, logoed ink pens, coffee mugs, baseball caps, or keychains. I don't have enough drawers for all of these. No one else does either. Starbucks gift cards are always appreciated, and so is cash. And thank you can never be used enough. Let me give you a story of a really, truly memorable gift. In 1987, I was the marketing director for the Nabisco Championships at Oak Hills Country Club in San Antonio, Texas. The Nabisco Championships was the first tour championship. The tour championship is now held every year at East Lake Country Club in Atlanta. And it's the season-ending event of what is now called the FedEx Cup. Well, at that time, Nabisco Brands was the sponsor of the season-long PGA Tour. And so we had the Nabisco Championships with the top 32 money winners competing for a big prize at that point of $2.5 million in a purse. That tournament actually was the last regular PGA Tour uh, event that Tom Watson won. Um, well, I worked for a guy named Mike Reichman. Mike uh, worked for Omar Communications, who managed the Nabisco business. And he tried to figure out what was the best gift to give the players, okay? Not sponsors, not pro-am competitors, but the actual 32 players that were playing. Now, what are you going to give a PGA Tour 
player. A visor or a putter, <laughs> sleeve of balls? I don't think so. What Mike did was he went out and he got the Justin Boot Company to come to San Antonio on Monday on practice round day. And they brought like 2,000 styles of boots. And each of the 32 players got to pick out the style they liked. They custom fit them. And during the week, they made them and delivered them to them by the weekend. What a great gift that said, thank you for coming to San Antonio. Thank you for being a part of the inaugural Nabisco Championship. Several years later, I ran into Ben Crenshaw. And Ben told me, Rick, you know, I still have my boots. Now that is a memorable gift, and that's your Tuesday tip. My guest angler today is Sean Lupton, Vice President of Brand Partnerships at Opry Entertainment Group. In addition to the Grand Ole Opry and the Ryman Auditorium, uh, they also own and manage the Old Red nightclubs that are uh, in a partnership with Blake Shelton, and they have plans to open up a lot of those around the country. Sean came to the Opry Entertainment Group after a long career with Gannett Newspapers, and he's brought fresh thinking, new events, and new sponsors to his properties at Opry. Let's welcome Sean to the show. Hey, Sean, welcome to From the Bridge. Hey, Rig, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Well, give us a little bit about your background before you came uh, to the Opry team. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent about 20 years in and around media and and traditionally in, in print media, um, I, I did consulting for Coles Publishing out of Spokane, Washington, years and years ago, and, and traveled the country and, and worked and, and did consulting at newspapers in their sales departments. I uh, got lured away by a newspaper uh, in Chattanooga for a couple years and ran the uh, the major metro market there on the retail side, and then ended up joining Gannett and USA Today uh, here in the Nashville at the Tennessean. And worked majors and national accounts uh, for them for many years, and and more recently was the general manager of a couple of different uh, community newspapers in the Middle Tennessee area. So had had a wonderful experience with them. Really uh, joined newspapers at a very transitional time uh, when they were really reshaping from what just a print media company was doing uh, to to implementing you know partnerships with Yahoo and Google and creating internal agencies that did web dev and, and things of that nature. So uh, really brought uh, a lot of different experiences, you know, kind of to the table. And we figured out how to fail fast. Uh, that That's for sure, uh, which is which is always a good thing. But very, very uh, a different kind of a time, you know, for a, for traditional media. And, and then had the opportunity to move over to the entertainment kind of side with the Grand Old Opry and, and have been there, uh, been here a year uh, last week, actually. Well, you know, Gannett was such a famous uh, company for innovations. I, m- I remember when USA Today first came out, and it was a little bit like ESPN where people said, oh, nobody's going to buy a 24-hour sports network. People said nobody's going to buy a newspaper for the nation, <laughs> and yet they they proved that to be wrong. And then you mentioned the, the, the really they were the leader in, in the digital transformation of local newspapers, and I think some of that background for you has got to be helpful to the Opry as we look to, I think, more what I call digitize the Opry experience. Talk about some of the things you're doing there with with content uh, and, and with the net. 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that that Gannett was very good at was aggregating data, particularly at the end of its uh, or end of my time with Gannett. We we were looking at how um, people interacted with stories, how that drove content. You know, I'll give you a great example. The, the sports department, um, instead of focusing on the score and what, what necessarily happened at the game last night, we assumed that people knew what the score was and had already had the score. And that was, quote unquote, old news. And so the focus shifted to how does that impact the next game or how does that impact certain players and, and things of that nature and try to take a more analytical role um, at the Opry. We've looked at how does the audience interact with the, the artist directly? How does the show itself evolve and continue to evolve? Obviously it's an institution from, from that standpoint, but how are people interacting with that? What artists are resonating? What kinds of music is, is resonating, whether that be more Americana or Mar crossover, you know, things of that nature and want to put together, you know, a, a variety show uh, like we've kind of always done, but you'll see, I think more up and coming artists on the Opry, a real focus on innovation in the music itself. Um, as well as how the audience can consume, you know, that music. And we're certainly investing in experiences and whether that's the daytime tour experience at the Grand Old Opry and the backstage, uh, you know, experience to to trying to get a much more intimate uh, experience for for folks that are attending the Opry and using data to kind of help us with that. Well, you've also got so much content you know, I, I am, uh, if you look at the history of, you know, 90 plus years of the Opry and um, the historical footage, the historical recordings right up till today, what, what are you going to do with that content? What's kind of your, your, your content play? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, we're blessed, obviously, with having a rich library of, of not only things that happened uh, on the Opry, but but that happened kind of adjacent to, for lack of a better term, and, and from some of the memorabilia we have. I'm always amazed when I just walk in and start looking at the walls and pay attention to some of the pictures and some of the, the signed guitars or signed fiddle and, and, and things of that nature. But uh, one of the things that we've just announced is a partnership with Gray TV. And we think that there is an underserved part of, of, of the country music lifestyle consumer out there. And, and not that I can disclose uh, uh, here a ton of, of what that's going to look like, but I can tell you it's a very exciting time uh, for us. And we're exploring certainly things that, uh, you know, can be on a Netflix type platform and, and others where, where we'll really be able to bring some of those stories to life if you can't come to Nashville um, and experience it necessarily firsthand. And thinking about how the artists themselves are interacting with with their fans and, and looking at new fans um, and how we can help, you know, those artists do that and really kind of cultivate, um, you know, a rich uh, ecosystem and environment for country music in general and then how the Opry can play on its heritage, uh, but also really uh, focus on, on new and innovative things. Um, you know, we're attending Bonnaroo and Stagecoach, you know, as an example of, of ways we're trying to take the Opry out of the Opry. Well, you know, the best country songs always tell a story. And then there's a story of how that person wrote that song. And then there's a story about how that person heard that song and wanted to record that song. Then there's the story about what that song meant to a consumer. Uh, 
who heard that song, or maybe that song was the song they played at their wedding. Um, and so, you know, it really is all about the story. Um, and, you know, past, present, and future stories, I think, is really the heritage of the Opry. Yeah, I would I would agree. And and we've tried to do that. If you get a chance or somebody coming to Nashville gets a chance to experience the new Opry tour, um, we we really had an antiquated, in my mind, um, tour experience before that. We kind of let the building speak for itself. And we didn't do a good job of telling the story of the Opry through the artist's perspective. And this is this is something that literally has just opened in, in the last four weeks, where Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks helped us out and really told the story of the Opry from, from an Opry member's perspective. And then there's even a, a portion of, uh, hey, if you can't attend a show, here's what it looks like, uh, you know, right before the show happens and a kind of behind the scenes, you know, look from that standpoint. And, and then you get to go backstage and see where those dressing rooms and see, see where kind of all that magic happened. But it does a much more effective job of, of telling the Opry story, uh, you know, from the perspective of the, of the artists. And, and that was important to us. Well, you mentioned Bonnaroo and Stagecoach. Uh, I, I have to assume that when you're in those locales, your music mix is a little bit different uh, because you've got a different audience. It is. We we still try to maintain the the richness of what the Opry experience is, and and in that, it it really is a variety show. You are going to see six to eight different acts. Um, on any given night at the Opry. And, and some of those can be, you know, an up and up and coming type of artists, heritage artists that have well-established hits, but might not be, you know, touring at this time because they're in that stage of their career and generally very contemporary and, and current, you know, chart toppers and hit makers um, that you're going to get all that into kind of one show. Um, as an example, when we did the uh, uh, Bonnaroo this year, you had Old Crow Medicine Show as kind of a, a headliner for Bonnaroo, but you also had, you know, other up and coming artists, um, some Opry Next Stage, you know, type of artists with Riley Green and, and Travis Denning. Um, you know, you, you had a, 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 a good variety and it really painted the Opry in, in kind of a different light. Well, tell our listeners exactly what the Opry Next Stage program is. You know, I know it's designed to focus on younger uh, emerging artists, but talk a little bit about it, uh, who these people are, where they come from. Yeah. Absolutely. So we we have obviously have had a long history of really trying to raise artists' profiles and and provide a, a a spotlight, so to speak, for an artist and to accelerate their career. And this program kind of took that to the next level. We are obviously not a label, we are not a booking agency, and we're not artist management from that standpoint. But what we've done is partner with several of the big artist management companies, so Sony, Big Machine, um, you, you know, you name it, and identified an artist that both we thought and that agency's management thought um, was going to be, had a bright future, for lack of a better term, had a bright future, and how could we work with them to accelerate their career? And this is the first year of that program. So the inaugural class has Riley Green and Travis Denning, Tennille Towns, and Tegan Marie. And, and all of those have, have very different you know, audiences uh, necessarily, and, but, but some have some overlap. And, and we've really 
focused on putting them, uh, providing Opry marketing behind them, giving them opportunities to play at events that they might not have, have normally played at. Um, and and really trying to accelerate the their career through exposure uh, through the Opry channels as well as their labels channels. Well, it's um, it's a great thing to be able to play the Opry. You know, if you're if you grew up a fan of country music as a child and you started, you know, playing the piano or playing the guitar at an early age and. You know, that had to be the destination that everybody wants. And now you're giving these young artists a chance to play on the Opry for the first time. Talk a little bit about that, what it's like for, you know, someone that's been playing, you know, honky-tonks in their small towns. Uh, And the next thing you know, (laughs) they're on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry or they're on the stage of the Ryman Auditorium. That's got to be very special. Everybody's path to how they got there is a little bit different, and some are a hell of a lot longer, you know, than others. And and, uh, and a lot of artists would would agree with that. Um, we we have about thirty to forty five Opry debuts in any given year, meaning there's thirty to forty five different artists that make their debut at the Opry. And we actually memorialize that and we have a content series that we kind of, that we put together not only for the artists, but for their fans and just fans of country music in general, where we will, we will document, you know, that experience. And, and obviously it adds to our archives, but it gives the artists also uh, something very memorable that they can, they can keep and use, you know, to, to promote themselves. But, um, you know, when they step into the circle and the story of the circle, for those that don't know, is that is a cutout of the original Ryman stage at the Ryman. So the Opry moved from the Ryman auditorium in downtown Nashville in 1974 and is in its current home here at, at the Grand Old Opry, where basically the show outgrew the venue in terms of the, the popularity. Uh, but we took a piece of that stage. And so that, that stepping in the circle is kind of stepping in where where all of the, you know, the Roy A. Cuffs and the mini pearls and the Johnny Cash's, you know, played and, and stepped into that that circle. So that, that there's a piece of that on the on the current Grand Old Opry stage. And again, it's very different for every, you know, for every artist, but it is usually a, a quite a thrill to not only make their debut, and then the next step in that is being asked to become an Opry member. There are only 68 living and performing Opry members currently, and, and actually tomorrow night, uh, Luke Combs will become the next member of the Grand Old Opry, um, and I'm often asked how does one become a member of the Grand Old Opry? And there's several artists that that, that you, you would know, and from Little Big Town to Carrie Underwood to Darius Rucker to Blake Shelton that are members. And there are others uh, that, that aren't. And, and there's no written criteria. It is, it is really a, a combination of, of factors, um, you know, including a, a love of the Opry itself and, and the level of chart success and, and things of that. There's a lot of intangibles. But it is certainly a very special... Uh, and memorable experience for for those artists uh, that that you know get that honor and receive that honor. Well, we you know we record here in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, and you know Darius Rucker lives down here, and I know what an honor it was for Darius, and how special it was when he was invited to become a member of the Opry. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a funny story about that, and and not about his induction night in general, but every member has a has a bronze plaque 
inside the Grand Old Opry. When you first come in, they have a mailbox. You can actually send them mail at the Grand Old Opry, and they have their name immortalized in a bronze plaque. And every time Darius comes into the Opry, he kind of rubs that bronze plaque, and he rubs it coming in, and he rubs it coming out. Well, over time, that bronze plaque of his has faded a little bit. You can actually, <laughs> you can actually touch that and, and feel that and go, well, why isn't, why isn't so-and-so's artist, you know, that's a little faded there, you know? And, and that's just kind of one of his, his uh, you know, things that he does when he plays the Opry. Um, and, and that just shows how much, you know, that means to, to him. Well, you mentioned the Ryman, you know, the, the mother church, it's still a very, very, very special, um, you know, place. Um, anytime I'm at the Ryman, I, I think about the ghost, you know, it's almost like you can see Hank Williams or Elvis Presley or, you know, Minnie Pearl or all the greats that played there. What, what makes that building so unique? You know, I think, Rick, it starts with the history. You know, very few theaters are, are 140 plus years old um, and, and still still standing for, for one and then have that charm, you know, uh, with it. It is a very intimate environment. It only seats 2,200. But there is a multi-million dollar sound system in this building, this 140-year-old theater. And and I think the combination of the history of the building, the, the unbelievable sound system, and flat out how close you are as a fan to the stars that are playing that stage – um, just just makes it something special. I mean, and, and the great thing about the Ryman, in my opinion, is, you know, it's truly a, a venue that all genres of music will play from from country to hip hop to to contemporary rock. I mean, just this year alone, we've had John Mellencamp and we've had the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, it, you know, you just you never know kind of who's going to play the Ryman. And, and certainly we market that venue differently than we would market the Grand Old Opry. Um, it, it is obviously very much a tourist destination and tour product by day, but by night it is a full functioning concert, you know, venue. And, and a lot of the local Nashville, middle Tennessee residents get to enjoy those shows, but it's also a destination. Um, we, we have folks from all over the country that just want to experience a show at the, at the Ryman. And there is something going on inside that building 300 plus nights per year. Um, and, and it allows us to really do some fun, fun crossover things. And of course the Opry actually goes to the Ryman for three months a year in the months of, uh, December, January, and February, you can catch an Opry show at the Ryman auditorium. Yeah. That's a really special event to think about, uh, uh you know, a grand old Opry show in the, in the site of the original show and all, and, and all that, um, we had the chance to work together on uh, the Opry Salutes, the SEC, as part of the SEC basketball tournament in in Nashville. The SEC's pretty much made Nashville the permanent home of college basketball for them, like they've done uh, in Atlanta with their football championship. Talk a little bit about that show and, and, and how that all came together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, it started with certainly the audience, uh, th- that both the SEC and the Grand Ole Opry have a rich and highly engaged audience. And in, in working with, with you and the SEC, uh, we just saw there was so much overlap and so much synergy there that it was one of those, why hadn't we done this sooner, you know, kind of mentalities. And of course, music 
plays in the sense that it it crosses over socioeconomics and gender and um, you know interests and things of that nature. It really it really can resonate. And I think one of the things the SEC thought was how can they enhance their programming and and create a fun, engaging fan experience. And selfishly, we thought, gosh, how in the heck can we get in front of the SEC audience, which is so huge and diverse and and highly engaged? And so it it came together in a way that that allowed us to create an event that really capitalized on uh, an Opry show and the, all of that programming that comes with that, and provide a really fun and engaging fan experience as an extension of a basketball tournament. Uh, on a Saturday night when there wasn't the bas- a basketball game being played and, and allowed, you know, a lot of cross-marketing opportunities and a lot of contesting and, and like I said, fun fan engagement and from, from artists being on, you know, Paul Feinbaum's show um, and providing exposure for those artists to, you know, fans coming in. Obviously, a lot of Kentucky fans come in. We purposely programmed you know, Ricky Skaggs from Kentucky for that show. And there's obviously a lot of Tennessee fans were here because they had a good team this year as well. So we, you know, purposely programmed, you know, the the singer of, of Rocky Top. And he did that, you know, rendition, you know, right there during the show, which was which was great. So it it really allowed for a lot of fun. And, and uh, you know, that was the whole goal of, of that kind of a partnership. Well, it was pretty special to hear Bobby Osborne sing a song that he had recorded over 60 years ago called Rocky Top that has become the theme song for the University of Tennessee Volunteers. And it was also special for me. You know, Greg Sankey's the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He's a big, big country music fan. And for him to be you know, on the stage and be part of it. And then Jimmy Dykes, who's one of my favorite people, you know, Jimmy's actually has has written some songs. He's a songwriter. And, and for him to, as he said, get to play the Opry where he get to be, he got to be a guest announcer. I think was, he would consider to be one of the most special evenings of his career. And, and obviously we were fortunate enough to get Belk department stores to be the title sponsor of that. You know, I, I believe like you believe that, the Opry products, the Grand Ole Opry, the Ryman Auditorium, um, are undervalued from a sponsorship standpoint. We reach a very rich, diverse, loyal, national, and in some cases, international audience. Um, talk about the opportunities for brands uh, to partner with you guys. Well, I tell you what, it, it's interesting in that we we have purposefully not targeted uh, um, uh, we, we don't have a lot of partners for, we, we, we prefer to not go out and make it look like a big sporting arena or, or anything like that. So the brands we, we partner with, and, and we are very selective in that really have an opportunity to, to engage, um, and be very visible, you know, at our properties, we target really just three to five core partners and, and they have a rich opportunity to do, uh, not only in venue branding, cause that's, you know, that's a given, but really create, we, we will work with them to create custom content. Um, I'll give you an example. Nissan is a partner with us at the Ryman auditorium and, and they, We've created a backstage at the Ryman product presented by Nissan and and shot a a completely custom commercial for Nissan to kind of bookend that content. 
uh, that was very authentic and, and, and very real. And it allows them to, you know, have that association. It allows their social media teams, as an example, to, to push that content and, and allows us, obviously, the opportunity to, to do some fun and, and cool things. And we've created events at, at our venues to, to give other engaging opportunities, contests, you know, experience Nashville package. We'll do flyaways, you know, with Southwest Airlines and, and, and others where, you know, if you can't come to Nashville, we want to give you an opportunity to really, you know, uh, experience that through through a contest and through a third party brand. Um, you know, but, but between kind of content, hospitality offerings, in-venue exposure, there's just a wealth of, of things that you can do um, that can that can really drive your brand without necessarily being tied to one or two artists. You kind of have that association of being tied to the genre in general, um, and that allows for a lot of flexibility. All good stuff. Let's let's uh, close with one final question. I know y'all have a partnership with Blake Shelton on Old Red restaurants and clubs. Talk a little bit about that and and expansion plans for Old Red. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really exciting thing. We we again saw that there was a opportunity to have that people wanted to experience a really authentic country music. Um, you know, uh, where, where with up and coming stars and established stars, but they couldn't make it to Nashville all the time to be able to do that. And so um, uh, we have a great partnership with Opry member Blake Sheldon and created a, a brand called Old Red. And it is kind of a high end restaurant, music venue, bar, honky-tonk, for lack of a, a better term. But it gives people the opportunity to kind of experience what Lower Broadway on Nashville feels like in, in other cities. And we have a, a location in Oklahoma and in, in Tishmingo, Oklahoma, which is Blake's hometown. We've got one in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. We've got one in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. We'll have one in Orlando in spring of 2020. And there are plans to announce uh, several more of those locations. But it, it really uh, kind of takes that House of Blues kind of feel, but it is a, it is a very authentic country music you know, venue and you can go in and enjoy, you know, dinner or lunch and, and drinks and then just sit back and really enjoy a concert experience. Um, we're not necessarily passing the hat around for tips like you, you see in a lot of the downtown Nashville honky tonks. These are elevated artists. A lot are signed by a label already and are just kind of in their infancy. Um, and then you never know who's going to pop by. M many a time Blake Shelton has just walked out there or Chris Jansen or Kelsey Bellarini have, have all played the old red stage. And, and one of the things that we're looking at is how do we create residencies for some of these artists at those venues as we expand them and allow them to, you know, play in Las Vegas or Orlando for, you know, a week or two and, and give folks a chance to, to really experience that without having to make necessarily the trip to Nashville. Well, that's good stuff. You know, we may call it the Grand Ole Opry and Ole Red but there's nothing old about country music today. Sean, thanks again for joining us from the bridge. Hey, my pleasure, Rick. Appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. Let's close today's show with another segment of On the Road with Rick. Um, a few weeks back, my wife and I had a chance to celebrate our 34th wedding anniversary, and we went up to New York for a show at Feinstein's 
and then we had a quick trip over to New Jersey to see my brother Steve and my uh, nieces and nephew. Um, and then we spent a week on the North Fork of Long Island staying in Greenport. Um, while we were there, we visited wineries and we ate a lot of terrific food. But one of our favorite places was a place in downtown Greenport called Noah's. And Noah's is owned and operated by Chef Noah Schwartz. And his wife, Sunita, is actually the uh, sommelier who selects the wines to match the, uh, the food. Uh, now, they have great entrees there, but the night we were there, we actually shared five different appetizers. And here's what we had. We first had a Frito Misto that was as good as anything I've ever had with baby artichokes, asparagus, and green beans. A really unusual Frito Misto with a aioli basil sauce that was just just phenomenal. Secondly, we had a beet and peaches salad with whipped feta that, let me tell you, it was magnificent. We had a picato crab cake with a curry coleslaw. I'd never had cur- a coleslaw with curry. I'm going to make that from now on. It was amazing. Then we had a grilled asparagus with a poached egg and fried shallots that was amazing. And then to top it off, we had the best appetizer maybe I've ever had. We had a red crab mini tacos with pickled red onions. There are great restaurants all over the North Fork, but Noah's is very, very special. That's our show for today. We hope you'll join us again next week from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. But me